Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. What's going on, U-Turn friends? I'm so excited. There's someone on the show today that I've really wanted to have on for a while. I have seen her on so many of my friends' podcasts making a really big impact, and it's Dr. Jolene Brighton. She's a hormone expert and nutrition scientist and just generally a thought leader in women's medicine, and she's a board-certified naturopathic endocrinology and she's trained in clinical sexology, which, I mean, come on now. We got to get into that. Um, she's the author of a book called Is This Normal? Judgment-Free Straight Talk About Your Body. And I'm really excited about this book because it's all about, you know, hormonal balance, uh, eliminating unwanted symptoms, and also sexual desire and making it so that you crave, you build the sexual desire that you crave. And she's also a fierce patient advocate really dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. She empowers women all over the world to take control of their health, their hormones, uh, through her website and her social medical channels. I love that she says social medical and not social media. Um, And she is an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor in the tech community. I want to ask her today about her book, Is This Normal? We're going to talk about hormone questions, sex drive questions, birth control questions. I want to dive in. So this is the episode about lady parts. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Brighton, for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. You know, during that intro, I'm just curious, who are your friends that have podcasts? Whose podcasts have I been on? Angie Lee. um, Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I've just seen your name. Maybe almost 30. Krista. um, Mm -hmm. You've been everywhere. I love Krista. I do. I get around. I'm kind of slutty when it comes to podcasts and um, educating women about their bodies. (laughs) I love that for you. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, you know, it's interesting because I love that your book is called Is This Normal? Because I always text my doctor friends like the most bizarre body parts and questions like, yeah, yeah you know, an ingrown hair on my bikini line. Like, do I have herpes? Like, God knows what, like I'm texting it. And Um, you know, what's great is there's a whole table in the book on exactly that, the lumps, the bumps, the things down there. Um, because I get the same thing from my friends and even on social media, I'm like, please don't share your vulva on Instagram because I don't know what Meta's doing with that. I don't trust them. Like that, I don't trust them with your bits. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it happens to me all the time as well. I tell a story in the book about being in a baby shower and, um, and this mom being like, I'm the only one that like can't Netflix and chill. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are we talking about here? Um, and there's just, I mean, like, there's really, my friends would kill me, but there's so many instances that I could have, instead of patient stories, put in friend stories in books of like, um, you know, when this, when this book came out it um, my friends, so I have so many friends that will message me, um, that like these questions of like, just like here in my labs and like, what do you think about that? That I now have this book to send them. And they're like, oh my God, this is like, this is like texting you. And, but I can get an instant, like an instant answer. I don't have to wait for you to put the kids to bed before I hear from you. 
That's such a good feeling. And I feel like so needed. Um, I even wanted to just kind of do a walk through your table of contents because yeah, yeah. you make a really good point that people can open the book wherever they are, whatever issue mm-hmm. they have. So it feels like just kind of like a, almost like an encyclopedia for weird female body <laughs> challenges. Um, okay. So, you know, the first chapter you talk about sex and like libido And I wanted to start here because I feel like so many people are always trying to figure out with their partner as the lust kind of dies and they move into kind of the next phase of their relationship where it's true love, true connection. Maybe they have babies, you know, maybe they know each other, they know each other's bad breath and BO and like everything is a little less mystical uh, and you're not blinded by chemicals. What would you say around that idea of what is normal for libido, just for anyone that's sitting there kind of wondering, like, am I in a relationship where this there's a discrepancy? Are we having bad sex? Am I supposed to be having more orgasms? Like all of those things. Yeah. You know, firstly, your metric is the one to measure. Like yeah. your normal is the one to measure. And if you feel like, oh, I've always had like a really robust libido and now suddenly I'm not interested at all. And we want to investigate what the changes are. But it's your normal, your baseline, where we want to start. But you're absolutely right when we get into a new relationship is that there is a chemical surge in the brain that is not sustainable. It's absolutely not sustainable. It's not healthy to have it be sustainable. And I think that's important for people to understand you're not broken, it's not you. It is that you have one to three years max before you you really have burned out that chemical <laughs> response, and you you have to you have to get to a plateau with that. And so that's a really common normal experience. In the libido chapter, I talk about the hormone component. So as I said, like number one, yours is the metric to measure. But we do know, as I talk about the interface of hormones and psychology. Hormone changes and hormone imbalances, so perhaps having too little testosterone or too much testosterone, too little estrogen, too much uh, estrogen, imbalances between your uh, estrogen and your progesterone, or perhaps there's a cortisol issue or insulin issue going on, these types of imbalances can lend themselves to what Bancroft and Jansen described in their dual control model as a break. And it can be one of the breaks that we put on that can dampen our ability to get aroused, to get in the mood, to stay aroused, to achieve orgasm altogether. Mm, Okay. And so I like that you turn it back. And I feel like a lot of people who are sex experts of sorts, like they generally do say like there is no normal and that seems to be the myth that we're busting. Um, Is there a certain amount of sex that you think is healthy for the body? Like I know there's so many chemical benefits of having an orgasm sexually connecting. Would you say like, hey, everyone, at least try to do it this many times a week, ideally for your body's well-being? Yeah. So there's like what the science says about you know, orgasms on a weekly basis are really important for optimizing immune function, for longevity hormones. There's no doubt that like orgasms are going to help you live longer when you look at the science of it. And at the same time, like when we talk about our male counterparts, so for all the penis owners, you come with a prostate and your prostate does better with more frequent ejaculation. And so you know, some research has been like, do it at least a dozen times. And others have said like 21 times a month. And so there, you've see, we see this range, but it seems to be around the dozen mark is like the minimum. 
for ejaculation, then this is when whenever people are like, no, like you should never masturbate. It's like, well, there's actually health benefits mm. to masturbation. It's why there's a whole chapter on masturbation, just talking, busting a lot of the myths around it, but also talking about the benefits. So, well, I can tell you that you know, weekly, one to three times a week can be beneficial for your hormones, for hormones of longevity, um, for regulating your menstrual cycle, for helping with your immune system. I mean, I have a whole like list of things that orgasms do. That creates an expectation, a sexpectation, if you will, that can absolutely put you out of the mood. So as I say all of that, excuse me, as I say all that, I just want people to understand that pressure around sex can absolutely be a complete turn off. Um, this is where, so I talked about like your baseline is the metric to measure when it comes to libido, but also that your experiences will heavily influence your interest in sex. And if you've ever felt pressure around sex and, and, and it didn't, it wasn't a good outcome. And then you feel that pressure again, that can also crash your libido. And, um, you know, the third thing I would just say though, is that, um, your sexual desire is also going to fluctuate. So when we say like on average, like at least one to three times a week, you may very well find that like you're packing it in around ovulation and then it's it's tapering off in the late luteal phase, which in the book, I go through all of the ways that your hormones can influence the fluctuation in sex and also your ability ability to orgasm, which I think Mm. is important to understand. Do you want to get your daily dose of greens, but you feel like you're kind of eating dirt? This episode is sponsored in part by our dear friends over at AG1. And what I love about their greens is that they're not only carbon neutral, but they taste really good. I started taking AG1 because I really wanted to get all the nutrients and vitamins that I could possible, but I just couldn't bring myself to drink those celery, vegetable, juice, smoothie situations. I wanted something that actually tasted good and was also really good for me. So their greens taste very tropical, tasty, and yes, they have travel packs that are perfect for road trips and getaways. Because if you're anything like me, you don't want to bring a big old box of powder. So you never have to miss out. I've been on Athletic Greens for the past year and I cannot seem to live without it. I actually look forward to drinking my greens with them every morning. So with one tasty little scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This very special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, even anti-aging. It's really all the things. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and just give your immune system this gift of convenient, daily, easy nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit drinkag1.com slash U-Term. That's D-R-I-N-K-A-G-1.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N, drinkag, and the number one, ag1.com slash U-Term to take ownership over your health and pick up the daily nutritional insurance that your body needs. Now let's get in to this week's episode. 
Another thing that I think is really present for a lot of people is just like arousal. Like I feel like men feel like a NASA switchboard in my experience. And I'm just like a heterosexual woman with only this experience, but it feels like they're turned on or turned off. Like it's just a button. Whereas for women, it feels like a full switchboard, like all these different buttons. So is there some sort of scientific explanation or education we can get around like what is optimal when it comes to foreplay? Because I know a lot of men you know, in my sexual history, it's like they're ready when they're ready. And for me, I'm like, I need a second to catch up to this. So what can you share about that on a scientific level just to help people understand that discrepancy um, okay. in sexual yeah. contact? Yeah. So there's a few things I want to unpack here. So number one is there is a phenomenon known as arousal non-concordance, and it can happen for men or women. Women will know this is like, I'm really into this, but I cannot get wet. I just can't self-lubricate. Men have the same experience of like, I'm really into this, but I can't actually get an erection. And it can be opposite too, where you're not into this, but your brain has taken that that sexual stimuli and is like, oh, genitals, do your thing. And then you have erections at the wrong time. Women get erections too. They're just not as pronounced because the clitoris is smaller. Um, or you're, you're feeling a, a stirring in your nether regions and you're like, I just watched this TikTok video and I don't understand because I right. don't think that's attractive. And your brain's like... You know, all, it was all systems go where they could receive the sexual stimuli and it just interpreted it. Your brain is the final say in mm-hmm. all of this. So there's that piece of it. The other thing is that I think the whole analogy of a, of a light switch really does come from that male perspective of like it feels like it's on or off. We also have that like how do we turn on uh, light switches? Things go up, right? <laughs> so I think that's where a lot of this comes from. And when you look at that model I referenced before with the gas pedal and the brake, I think that's a lot better way of explaining women in that when you are hitting the accelerator, you never just slam on the gas. When you're in a car, it's a slow, gradual increase that you are pressing that pedal down and the vehicle is moving. And that's a good way to think about women. In the book, I talk about how it can take 20 minutes for you to even get aroused and get in the mood um, in terms of like being stimulated and then another 20 minutes until you orgasm. And this, the research says like, oh, maybe more like 14 to get into like the, you know, the mood on the average. But I, I buffer with the 20 because I think it's just better to set up the expectation that it can take longer. So it can take longer, but the big thing to understand is that it doesn't always. So you you might be the exception around ovulation. It can be less so. You can be you can be like much more inclined to get aroused and to orgasm a lot easier. However, I will say that it's just really important that we remove this expectation of foreplay. So foreplay, if your goal in a and foreplay is like a very heterosexual phenomenon born out of our sex education and really our society telling us that our vaginas solely exist for penetration. And like, that's what sex is. Sex is so much more than that. I think it's so, so important to understand because foreplay can be very, very satisfying. Foreplay is sex in itself. You might have an orgasm with foreplay and you might both be satisfied from that. But because again, this expectation comes in of like, well, there has to be more. That that was just the the pregame, right? We've got to actually go into the party and have penetration. It can feel a little bit frustrating for couples, especially when you understand that only 18% of women are orgasming via vaginal penetration alone. And so with this idea of um, foreplay and that sex can look differently, I also think this is important because if you're somebody who's 
going through a medical procedure. So I will just share currently I am going through IVF and I've got more than a dozen eggs like ready to rock. There can be there there can be uh you know a condom involved, but anything outside of that is going to put me at risk of being like John and Kate plus eight. And I don't want that. That's mm. that's terrifying. Um and if people don't know, go Google it. Eight babies, not for me. Um, but there's situations like that where it's like maybe there have been surgical procedures, medical procedures going on. Maybe you're pregnant. Maybe, um, maybe for whatever reason, penetration's off the table. I want people to understand that foreplay is enough, and it doesn't even have to be called foreplay. It can just be called sex, and it can be a good time, and you can be satisfied by that. So we've talked about like, okay, so there's this arousal and concordance. Then there's this idea of um, you know, being more of a gas pedal and a slow like ramp up. The third thing that I would say in this is that this whole like concept of foreplay as people know it, but really the ramping up towards sex is all beginning outside of the bedroom. It starts like the moment you wake up and your interaction with your partner is everything as is with everything else in your universe. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to stress in particular, so I could I could talk about just this topic like this entire time, but I want I did it in the book, y'all. When it comes to stress, stress in your relationship, stress at work, stress with children, stress with life, that cannot be overlooked. When your body is in a state of survival and cortisol is being pushed, you are going to put other hormones that put you in the mood that help you orgasm on the back burner. And this is where when every health and wellness person tells you, tend to your stress, make sure you're practicing stress reduction practices. And, you know, I talk about mindfulness in the book. Um, Do it for your sex life. If you haven't done it yet for your hormones, do it for your sex life. Okay. I have so many questions now. Like I want to ask you some basic questions around like, you know, sex and libido, like does like the size matter with men? Like, why is that a thing? Um, why can't women orgasm? Uh, what are some foods that might help you orgasm? So I'm just curious to yeah, yeah. get some of those basics. Like, why do you think there's a whole thought that size matters? Cause I know women talk about that. So Men talk about this mostly. And society is very much like, look, from the moment we are born, um, there are messages that we are just surrounded with of shame. And it isn't until, you know, really somewhere around like we start walking and we're toddlers that we start to integrate these messages of being ashamed of your body. It is not abnormal, uncommon, or unhealthy for a toddler to explore their genitals. But depending on their parents' relationship with that, um, they might shame them. And the same is true for your medical provider. If they haven't done their work, depending on their relationship with sex, they may be shaming you as well. So I just want to acknowledge those two pieces because then there is just society as a whole and the marketing that set tells men you need to have a large penis and a large penis is a sign of virility. And, and the large penis is what women want. And um, in reality, that's where size matters. Size doesn't matter as much when it comes to small penises. And I even talk about micro penises in the book um, when it comes to sexual satisfaction and pleasure and orgasms. Now, sexual satisfaction and pleasure isn't always defined by an orgasm. That might not be what what actually what most of the research says is about connection. It's about empathy. It's about intimacy. That's what makes for a pleasurable session. And when we know that only 18% of women are 
orgasming with vaginal penetration alone, it's what the research believes is that the women who are is based on anatomy. The way you were born, the 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 where everything lies in your vulva, that's going to determine that. Wow. And the women who are orgasming with vaginal penetration, they may be getting clitoral stimulation as well, which is like really the golden ticket. That is the way. That is, I feel very Mandalorian. That is the way, friends. Um, but with that, so this is where it's like size doesn't really matter because like your penis isn't necessarily the thing that every woman is like going to orgasm on. And there are other ways to have sexual satisfaction and women who do enjoy penetration. There's also toys they incorporate. But as I said in the book, the thing that matters is large penises because not every female body, not every vaginal canal, even though it goes through a tenting process, which I explain in the book when it's aroused, this is why arousal is so important, can accommodate that. And it's really funny because I have a friend um, who's a urologist and I swear to God, every time we come together, we end up having this conversation and he's always like, I just feel so bad for the men in my office because the ones who like you know, are told like, yeah, like you, you're like, you're amazing by society because you have this giant penis. Um, in reality, the conversation they're having with him is that I can't find a partner. I'm, I can't find someone. There is something called the O-nut. This is a silicone set of rings that you can place on the penis that controls the depth of penetration. And I also give other tips in the book for that. So that if you do have a partner with a large penis, you both can still have a good time and it can be satisfying without anybody being in pain or being hurt. Mm. So that was the first piece about size. You know, you had, you had two other questions. So go ahead and shoot those. My friend, are you ready to stay hydrated this summer? I have something for you. Grapefruit salt from Element. It's L-M-N-T. Because healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water and electrolytes. It makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. And both of those need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches, energy dips throughout the day. But most people only replace the water. So why is that? Well, since the 1940s, we've been told to drink eight glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. But drinking beyond your thirst is a bad idea. It actually dilutes your blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or worse. So this low sodium situation called hyponatremia is super common among endurance athletes, and the solution is not to stop drinking water either. It's to drink water with electrolytes. That is where LMNT, my favorite brand for electrolytes, has you covered. So former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains co-founder Louis Villasenor formulated Element to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium, and magnesium for health, performance, and energy. They also formulated Element to please your palate. It tastes so good. Try orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt, or you can experiment with five other flavors like this summer's grapefruit. I even like to put Element's chocolate flavor into my coffee in the morning sometimes. So Element just gave us a really fun offer. All you have to go do is head on over to drinkelement.com slash Ashley Stahl. That's D-R-I-N-K. 
lmnt.com slash A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L to receive a free sample pack of every flavor with your first purchase. My personal favorite is the watermelon and the lime. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash Ashley Stahl. Your salty little summer starts now. Okay. So other questions I want to ask just about, well, I kind of want to shift over from sex and sex drive. You talked about food supporting libido. So I just thought that would be really fun to look at that. And since you did talk about hormones and different elements of the body, I'm curious about insulin and adrenal health. Like I know a lot of women who are burnt out and stressed. So (laughs) yeah, libido, then kind of insulin and adrenals and how that affects our sexual health. Okay, I'm going to talk about food. If I forget about the cortisol insulin, then then you you bring oh, me back there. Um, so when it comes to food, I talk about in the book how there's like a sex diet and that is not fasting, but there are things that you can eat to optimize your sex life. And I will say this does blend really well into the insulin conversation because insulin dysregulation, hyperinsulinemia, which is a hormone imbalance of too much insulin is associated with a decrease in clitoral sensitivity. That's going to be a problem for having an orgasm when I tell you that the majority of women are going to have an orgasm through clitoral stimulation. So with that, we have to balance and optimize our blood sugar. We want to be doing this in men as well. When there is insulin dysregulation, there can be erectile dysfunction that starts developing. And um, when this is something that in men's health, they take it very seriously when there's erectile dysfunction because that can be a sign of cardiometabolic issues. So diabetes or heart disease. So yes, take it very seriously. In women, because we really just started talking about the clitoris like yesterday, it is not taken as seriously. And a lot of doctors are like, oh, you know, there shouldn't be like this, you know, stress to like orgasm or put pressure on women. And and, and people say that as well. Um, And I don't think we should be putting pressure on women. But if a woman says that she can't orgasm or her clitoris, like she's losing sensitivity in it, we all need to pause and ask why, because it can be a sign of a major health issue going on. And one of the ways that we can prevent that is through nutrition and lifestyle that I talk about in the book. In fact, so the book is is really big and it is a get in and get out kind of book. You don't have to read the whole thing front Pun to back. not intended. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Um, but anyhow, um, and so, you know, I really wanted to support people in this book and I wrote a digital cookbook that goes along with it. So it's a free cookbook that you can grab. It's at drbrighton.com slash ITN. So for is this normal? ITN dash resources. And it goes along with the book. It gives you recipes and there's meal plans that take you week by week in accordance with your menstrual cycle. And so some of the foods that we bring in that can specifically support libido. So we've talked about like, we've got a blood sugar balance. Um, that's going to help your adrenal glands as well, but eating more things like zinc, um, zinc is going to help keep your blood sugar stable, but it's also going to help with supporting your testosterone levels. Um, eating foods like uh, saffron, watermelon rind. Um, so watermelon rind is actually rich in citrulline, which is kind of like it's mama nature's Viagra. Mm. Um, so, you know, men and women can do this. I actually tell people to try pickled watermelon rind. I think it's really delicious. I actually will take watermelon rind and I will just take a bit of it and blend it up in the blender with like a little bit of liquid um, and make it a base to a smoothie as well. It can help with the erectile tissue, which as I describe in the book, both the penis and the clitoris 
same exact erectile tissue. So it's going to work for men and women. Um, and then, you know, incorporating other things that people might not think of, like chocolate, celery, um, spicy food. I'm a Latina. I'm like, listen, like, and I, like I say that, and I should clarify that like, um, I, my family's from Mexico and because not all, like not all of the Latinx or Latino community is actually eating spicy food, but friends eat your spicy food because if it increases blood flow and circulation, then that is going to help with getting blood flow down to those tissues as well. So we've talked about things that like this, we're going to support the libido, but we're also going to support the tissue response because if your tissues respond, and this is what I talk about, like the context matters, your experience matters. If the experience is we get in the mood, I get touched, it feels good, tissues work the way they they, they ought to, um, I'm having an orgasm, it's very, very pleasurable, then your brain, your nervous system is getting trained to be much more in the mood next time. Mm. Now, I want to answer your piece about cortisol and um, insulin a little bit further, but do you have questions from that? Because I know I just said a whole lot. No, I mean, that really covers it. I wanted to start, you know, after you kind of talk about that, I have some other questions. So for let's sure. get into it. Like what is going on with insulin and adrenal health? Why does it matter for our sex drive um, and just our sexual well-being? Your insulin and your uh, cortisol, your adrenal health, they matter for every aspect of your life. And this is something that doesn't get addressed until it's like a too late kind of situation. Um, it is, this is the part of sexual health and women's health that really nobody talks about. And even when we do, people are like, oh, whatever, like that's so boring. Just tell me about my estrogen and testosterone and progesterone. And I really frame it in the book. There is a hierarchy. And I had at the base of this pyramid that I give you, there's lots of graphics in the book. And this is one of them for you to understand that your adrenal health and your insulin is the foundation of your hormone health. So estrogen and testosterone, absolutely important in how you fantasize and think about sex, um, your arousal, your ability to orgasm are important hormones. They are at the very top of the pyramid and you cannot just address them without addressing the foundation. And what's sandwiched between those is thyroid. And so in the libido chapter, so everybody knows, I go through each of these hormones and why it matters. At that, that very foundation though, if we are not tending to our stress, we have to understand something. If you have ovaries, you are so much more sensitive to your environment. Men, they're like the sun. <laughs> they are cycling day and day in, day out. <clears throat> Women are like the moon. They're cycling over a you know 28, 29-ish day period. That is important to understand because this entire framework of supporting your adrenal glands and your insulin you may not notice it as quickly as a male counterpart. It may take time. But I want you to understand that you being very sensitive to the environment, you may get stressed. You may have a major stressor happen and you may not notice it in the, in the weeks following. It might be your next menstrual cycle that maybe ovulation comes late or you have the worst, most painful, awful period of your life. You probably weren't through some magnesium if that's the case. And so because you cycle in that way, one, the interventions that you bring in, they're going to take longer for you to see and experience the change. But also the stressors that come in, they may not be apparent. And you may be like, I was fine. And then you keep on keeping on and not tending to that stress or not taking care of yourself. And what happens 
is because you are an ovary owner, your body says the environment is not safe. If the environment is not safe, reproductive health is too expensive, having a baby is too expensive, and we must shut down everything in our power (laughs) to keep that from going. Now, it's not usually that drastic unless we just have like a major stressor or chronic prolonged stress, which is arguably the most dangerous. You are meant to have acute stressors and to rebound from that. You're not meant to have these acute stressors turn into a chronic day after day endeavor. Now, it was one example. So I always talk about cortisol, but DHEA, not DHA, okay? That's a fish oil. DHEA, this is a hormone that is declining starting in age 25. It's an anti-aging hormone. So that sucks. We want to keep it around. And it comes by way mostly from your adrenal glands, a little bit in the brain, a little bit from the ovaries, but your adrenal glands are where this hormone really comes from. In an acute stressor, DHEA goes up with cortisol to keep it in balance, which is why you'll rebound and you'll be okay if that stressor ends and you have been building your stress resiliency. And you won't notice this effect on like your libido and your menstrual cycle and your hormones and really the fallout. If the stressor is chronic and prolonged, the acute stressor persists, or you just are like putting yourself in a bad relationship. I mean, sometimes we don't put ourselves there. We find ourselves there and we have to find our way out of there. Um, Or you have a really stressful job, uh, things like that. We will find that DHEA cannot keep up and it plummets. Now, cortisol is left unchecked. So we just lost DHEA which is going to convert into into our testosterone and our estrogen. So one of our sources of sex hormones, not as significant as the testes or the ovaries are, but definitely necessary for menopause. So DHEA plummets, cortisol is left unchecked. Cortisol left unchecked is damaging for your cells, damaging for your brain cells. Your brain is the number one sex organ of the body. And so this is where getting really good sleep can help combat this and help like revive your DHEA. There's no, no feedback for DHEA that there is in other ways. So if our estrogen gets too low, our brain's like, no ovaries, get on it, make more estrogen. This doesn't exist for DHEA. And so this is why I talk so much about sleep in the book, because sleep is one of the ways we get our melatonin up. We restore, we actually revitalize our adrenal glands at night when we are sleeping. And that melatonin coming up is another hormone that can buffer against cortisol's effect and protect that very sexual organ, which is our brain. So what I've explained here is that, yes, the ovaries are super, super important. The way we perceive our environment, not the way we think about it, the way our entire system, our entire nervous system, our hormone system, our entire body is perceiving the environment can dictate our libido and our sex life. And in addition to that, when we're under that prolonged stress, it, we can start having an effect on our nervous system tissue, which is going to hinder the sexual input coming in. You can't really get the sexual stimuli coming in when there's so much like static and and chaos going on in the brain. So does that all make sense? I really hope I made a good case for everybody to love up their adrenal glands. And, um, and if you're like, how do we do that? I have a whole quiz in the book that, and, and then you follow it up with a whole lifestyle supplement and nutrition program to help you do exactly what needs to be done so that you can feel the best in your body. And if libido is the goal, great, we'll, we'll get there with that. That's like a side effect of being healthy and very vibrant in your health. Um, but overall, making sure that we're not aging at a cellular level faster than we should. 
Okay. Yes. That was so in-depth. And I, I feel like I need to have you on for like so many episodes because I have so <laughs> many questions. I want to talk about birth control because I feel like yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of people out there giving clear feedback on the pill, the mm-hmm. IUD. For example, I got a copper non-hormonal IUD in December. It was the most painful thing I have ever experienced in my life. I had no idea what I was walking into. I bled for six months um, and I had pelvic pain and cramping. My period went from four days a month to 10 days a month. I mean, it's just insane. And and then when, you know, people talk about the pill and I'm like, "Where, where do we go? So can you just talk a little bit about what do you suggest for birth control? What are what's your take on the pill, the IUD? Um, I would love just to educate anyone who's thinking about these things, um, or just any fears that people might have. Like I was on the pill for a long time because I had such bad cramping in middle school, and I just mm-hmm. never went off of it until five years ago. Um, and I have these fears of like, am I going to die because I was on the pill for so long? So anything that you believe or think about that. Yeah, you're not. You're very unlikely to die. Um, <clears throat> the you know the biggest like threat of death risk really comes from you know the stroke, the clot uh, risk when being on the pill. We don't have long term studies to understand like what other chronic conditions can develop. I have a book called Beyond the Pill where I go into all of this and I talk about how like you know there have been some studies showing that insulin resistance is higher postmenopausal if you've been on the pill. Um, that, you know, there, there is a mild increased risk in breast cancer. Um, there is a decreased risk in ovarian cancer is an endometrial cancer if you're on the pill as well. So I go through like the good, the bad, the ugly, as I call it of the pill and really the hormones that are in the pill. So if you have a progestin IUD, I do talk about the progestin IUD, um, hormones in the book beyond the pill. So the first thing I'll say is the birth control I recommend is the one that works for you, that you can be consistent with, that's meeting your goals, and that has the least amount of side effects. And it's different for every single person. And we have to honor that. So right now, we are at a really shitty place in American history. I'll just, I'm just not even going to like dance around it, where there are people who are seeking to take away what are, you know, classified as reproductive rights, but really access to birth control is a health right. Um, there are people who absolutely cannot get pregnant for whatever reason. And um, when we consider that, people always say, well, just use fertility awareness method. I personally have used fertility awareness method for years. I have um, anyone following my journey. I was able to space pre- a pregnancy by eight and a half years by using fertility awareness method. I was able to get pregnant, um, successfully get pregnant four times, unsuccessfully uh, carry to term four times. So that's been a really crappy part of my journey recently. However, that is me and what works for me. I am meticulous about tracking my data. I am a doctor. I understand how my body works. And I have always been okay with if this method failed and I got pregnant, I would be okay with that. So that's important to understand whenever people are like, just everybody should just do fertility awareness method. Okay, that would be great. Some people are night shift workers. That doesn't always work for them. Some people have PCOS. Some people, their hypothyroidism is not dialed in. Like there, there are a lot of variables where maybe that doesn't work for people. But I do think it is a method that everybody should be familiar with because it helps them understand their body and they can understand what is going on with their hormones. They can understand what is going on with ovulation. 
And that really is important data to have about your body. Now, as you mentioned, so we've got the pill. The pill doesn't work for everyone. Um, It works for some people. And what I'm about to say is not an excuse for anybody to try to remove contraceptive rights or women's access to this, because people will also say like, you don't really need the pill. It's just for promiscuous women. Well, you know what? If they want to be promiscuous, it's their life. Stick to your own. Like, I just never understand that. People... People will say, like, oh, as a doctor, like, how do you feel right about that? I'm like, I don't live in people's bodies. I don't get the, the audacity to think you know how to live someone's life better than them. Like, no, not for me, not for me. Um, so with that, the pill, this is a, so let me explain the mechanism by how it works. It shuts down brain ovarian communication. So it stops your ovaries from ovulating. And for some people with PMDD, which is a extreme, extreme form of PMS, which it's not even that really. I mean, it's its its own beast in itself because it can be like two weeks out of every month. So half a year people lose to this condition. Some people do better on the pill because it keeps the hormones static and they their brain is not using progesterone the way we would expect. Want people to understand with PMDD, suicidal ideation is not a stranger mm. as a symptom. People would take their own lives. So the pill is life-saving in that way. There are people with endometriosis. It doesn't work for everyone with endo, and it's not the only thing that I would do. But for some women with endo, the pill is keeping them from getting overstimulated by their own hormones so that they don't have proliferation of those tissues and they get a pain-free life. There are people doing IVF who need to have birth control so that they can time things and they can get it right so that like they can actually have a baby in the future. So they're actually using the pill to be able to get pregnant. I think this is important for people to understand before we dive into the fact that the pill does have side effects. So the mood side effects are some of the worst things I think that people report and that they go through. In Beyond the Pill, I detail how not just the pill, but the NuvaRing, the uh, progestin IUDs, the depot shot, all of these come with adverse mood symptom association. There's a correlation. I cannot say it causes it. But damn, if you haven't taken the pill yourself, I mean, I took the pill and my mood was like one of the worst it's ever been. Mm-hmm. I actually took the pill for 10 years so that I could have um, pain-free periods and I could go to college and be a first-generation college student. So it's not not to be understated, but these mood symptoms, doctors tend to gaslight women about them. It's what has made women so, so angry and rise up against, you know, the fact that they're not getting informed consent with the pill, which then has made other people rise up and be like, we should just take it away altogether. And I'm like, sit down. Like, that's not what we're saying here. So adverse mood symptoms definitely can come along with that. Um, Anxiety, depression, and um, in teens, there's an increased risk of suicide as well. So we need to be talking about this, not because we need to be afraid of it, because we need to monitor it. And women need to know it's not them, it's the pill. And if it's the pill, then talk to your doctor because there's other alternatives. You can sometimes change formulation, even go to the generic. If you want a name brand, you sometimes go to the generic and your mood symptoms shift. So it can be trial and error. With the pill, there's also the issue of nutrient depletions, which any doctor who has no education in nutrition will dismiss it and be like, well, you know, you're not getting scurvy. And it's like, well, no, yeah, we're not pirates, friend. We actually have vitamin C. There's like lemons in our life and bell peppers and things like that. Like we're not talking about frank deficiency to the point where like you end up with like 
scurvy and your guns are bleeding or rickets or things like that, right? I know, um, which rickets is actually childhood. So if you're put on the pill really early, <laughs> so if you're like on the pill now and you're like, when am I going to get rickets? You're not going to get this stuff. If you're eating just a, a diet that brings in plants, brings in high quality foods. And that's what I talk a lot about is that the standard American diet and the way that most people eat is subpar. You cannot give them a medication that depletes these nutrients and not have a conversation about nutrition. What nutrients are we talking about? Vitamin C, vitamin E, CoQ10. So antioxidants, super, super important in all things, but also ovarian health, anti-aging. And then there's other things like magnesium and zinc, B vitamins like folate, which you'll need if you get pregnant. So I actually advise people be on a multivitamin or a prenatal. Prenatals won't make you get pregnant, but something along those lines as an insurance measure, because your diet's not going to be perfect every day. It's just not. You, you can't. I, look, I've been a nutrition scientist for 20 years. My diet is not perfect every day. Sometimes my diet is really delicious, but I'm like, where are the nutrients? I made a mistake today. <laughs> so understand. Um, I say that because I'm currently traveling right now, but understand having that little backup can be really helpful. To your point of the copper IUD, copper IUD can be absolutely wonderful if it works for you and it can be an absolute nightmare if it doesn't. I had the same experience. I had no business getting on the copper IUD. I had a history of heavy periods and major cramps. And then I got the copper IUD and I was like, heavy periods, major cramps, but I still preferred it over the pill, even okay. though I did become anemic um, for me personally, because I just struggled. And I talk all about my side effects I had on the pill things my doctor never told me, things my doctor dismissed as being pill-related, things I had no clue were pill-related. Um, but same when it came to the pain of the IUD, that was, I have had two unmedicated childbirths and the IUD rivals it, rivals it. And, you know, I've talked about this on TikTok and it's so confusing to me how quickly the uh, US-based OB-GYNs jump in to gaslight women, to dismiss women, to tell them that like, there is no other way. And then you hear from doctors in other countries who are like, you guys are barbaric AF because there is another way. We actually sedate women. We numb the area. You see pain management doctors being like, there is absolutely a way. But this is born out of the same Freaking BS of these doctors, these same doctors are the ones who were taught in medical school that like the cervix has no nerve endings. So when, when women are getting the IUD, why do we tell them just a pinch? Why do we, if that's true, why is it just a pinch? We're doing colposcopies and actually taking chunks out of somebody. And we uh, need these biopsies. Understand this, everybody. You have to have the biopsy. If you need, if it's indicated, you have to have it as life-saving. But my God, can somebody give you a Valium, like at minimum, or get you some pain management? But it is still in the United States. I mean, gynecology, if you go through the history, you go to my TikTok, I have videos about the history. It is freaking barbaric. Um, the, modern gynecology was developed off of the bodies of Black, Brown, and Indigenous women. The only reason we have the pill is because women in Puerto Rico were exploited. They were being sterilized at such a high rate that they were desperate. 
They were desperate to get their hands on something that wouldn't take away their reproductive capacity for the rest of their life. And eugenicists, including Margaret Sanger, jumped in on that, exploited them, developed the birth control pill. And then all these people run around and say, well, you know, it was for the betterment of all women. Oh, yeah, except that you forgot the part that once the pill became available, they didn't make it available to the women in Puerto Rico. They didn't even make it affordable. And then by the 1970s, these women in Puerto Rico were sterilized. It was the highest sterilization rate that we've ever seen. It was nothing but exploitation of the woman's body. The modern gynecological tools that we have is because Black slaves who medicine still thought come like 2016 that Black women and Black people in general didn't experience pain at the same rate. But these Black slaves were not, they were, they were, they were cutting them open and doing surgery on them in the name of the betterment of gynecology. But like who did it actually serve and 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 who who did it actually serve when you look at that? And I don't want to offend anybody. And I don't, you know, it's less about offending anybody. I don't want that like Caucasian response of like, I don't want to hear this or you're making it my fault. It's not your fault. Okay. What people did in the past, but you do have to understand that this rhetoric has to change in that they did all of this to brown, black, and indigenous bodies in the name of coming up with better procedures for the white body. And that is who all of this benefited. But even now, this is where we all have to come together and recognize it is still barbaric. And there are other countries who would not do these things to women that they are doing in the United States. And there are other countries who do not have as high of obstetrical violence that is the violence that happens when you are trying to bring a small human, the future of our species into this world and do not have the same mortality rates, the maternal mortality rates that we see in the United States. So we just took a detour into my um, knee just going the F off right now. But like, this is the kind of stuff that like, when you tell me that an IUD hurt to have placed, it is the tip of the iceberg of the problems in that we have in women's medicine that we are still being gaslit about and that doctors are plugging their ears in about or attacking people on social media for having the audacity to share their story and their experience and being like, don't do that. You're fear mongering. You're scaring other women. Really? Because what you're doing doesn't seem to be working. Yeah. Oh, I I was like, I felt so betrayed by the healthcare system because I just was told that like, okay, a copper IUD is non-hormonal. And after getting off the birth control pill, my body had a huge upheaval in response to it, cystic acne, things I'd never yeah. had for a couple Come months. Same, same. Yeah. And so, you know, I forgot how bad my cramps were. I used to take off of school in middle school. Um, and ever since being on the copper IUD, I feel kind of helpless because I'm like, okay, I don't feel comfortable pure, like um, cycle tracking because I don't want to get pregnant yet with my partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so here I am with this thing that I get these weird pelvic cramps. Um, so this kind of gets me wanting to talk just about, you know, this idea of is this normal? A lot of people at one point or another, they have an abnormal pap smear. I'm curious, like, how common do you think that this is or what you know what should go through somebody's mind when they hear that because i know for me i've had an abnormal one mm -hmm. um and then i got a what did you call it poloscopy uh, uh what colposcopy is yeah. colposcopy Jesus, thank God I'm not a doctor or a mathematician. Um, it's just jargon. It's just like yeah. it's just jargon. And every industry has its jargon. 
That's not my, yeah. I used to work to, in the government. It was like alphabet soup, like NTMA Sistica. Like that's who I worked with. Like, who is that? Anyway, um, so I think with pap smears, I remember getting that call of like, your pap smear is abnormal and me feeling terrified. So it ended up resolving itself. Six months later, I got another pap smear and the irregular cells went away. I did have to get the thing that you said that I literally am not even going to butcher again. What can you share with everybody about how typical is it for us to sometimes have an abnormal pap smear? Um, what can, you know, how likely is it for us to get cervical cancer? And, you know, how big of a deal is that for us to worry about if we are staying on top of our health every single year and getting our pap smears? And I want to ask you about mammograms as well. Yeah. If you're getting your regular pap smears, I would not be wasting any energy with, um, concern about cervical cancer because one thing, so we just went off about the shit the US does bad. One thing we do well is counting cervical cancer because of the guidelines. So it used to be that um, we saw a lot more abnormal paps when we were doing them every single year. And now it's been spaced out to, you know, three years if you, and depending on your age, three to five years, if you have not had an abnormal. And the reason for that is because what was happening before is that with constant yearly paps, they were catching abnormals. And then there was intervention happening where, yeah, it, there's the colpo, so the colposcopy, the tissue biopsy, but um, actually having excision and different procedures done to the cervix, which is something you cannot go back on and um, can make it so you can't carry a child. And this is being done to young women. And then research progressed and medicine shifted. And this is the way that it should be. Um Medicine. Wait, so I want to make sure I understand that. So if you have an abnormal pap smear and they do the coposcopy is what you said? Coposcopy. Yeah. Coposcopy. Jesus. Okay. Coposcopy. That used to be seen as something that was damaging to the cervix. And now it's seen as something that is necessary. Like tell us a little more. Oh no. Okay. Let me clarify. So yeah. what was, what was problematic is that when we were doing this on like, let's say an 18 year old, she had an abnormal. We follow up persists abnormal, colposcopy shows that there's problems, then a excision may be done, a medical procedure that causes, that actually cuts out parts of the cervix. Now this maybe 19-year-old is unable to carry to term a child when she's 29 and she wants to have a baby. What we found in the research is that we can clear HPV. In mm. fact, you're very good at clearing HPV until you experience the immune system decline that happens in your 30s. Your hormones decline, your immune system dec declines, and now you may not be so good at clearing HPV. And I talk about human papillomavirus HPV in Is This Normal? So with that in mind, they change the recommendations and we don't do them as frequently. And yes, even the pap smear itself that might be, it is causing localized inflammation. It might be problematic for the cervix. So therefore medicine said, don't do it every year unless absolutely necessary and let's space it out. So back when I was a teen, you were getting them all the time, right? Every single year. Now we're spacing it out a lot more because medicine learned better and it's doing better and it's doing right by women with that. Mm. So that's just really important to understand. HPV is the number one cause of cervical cancer. Human papillomavirus is a virus that many, many people have. It can have warts. <laughs> so there's different strains that make warts, but the strains that cause cervical cancer, 
those do not make warts that are apparent like on the vulva or the anus that you would see. And that is why we have to do cell collection and test for that. And again, you're not going to be getting tested that until you enter into your 30s because we know you have the capacity to clear this virus and things that can help with clearing the virus. So this goes back to like taking your prenatal again um, or your multivitamins. So folate is something that can be really helpful. In our society, we tend to sit a lot, walking. So when whenever people on... Um, you know, social media like to be like, oh, like walking is nothing. Women need to lift weights. And I, and then they're like, I've got the program for you. And I'm like, walking is so beneficial for pelvic floor health and for pelvic health altogether. Um, hula hooping, belly dancing, just dancing in general, getting movement into your hips every single day is going to help with circulation down there. That is super, super important. And so I also, if people are like, you know, ordering a book can take several days to get there. Go to drbrighton.com, search HPV. I have a whole article about ways to preventively and naturally just support your body um, in, you know, in terms of the HPV arena in so that you can clear this virus because that's what's going to put you most at risk. And um, again, because of how good we are at screening, if you are getting regular screening, again, this is also a reason I advocate that we should not lose Planned Parenthood because this is one of the things that they can offer for very low cost and make sure that everybody's getting this screening. Um, to your point about mammograms, I think that's a very important screening to have done. I actually um, just had a mammogram uh, last year and I was still breastfeeding. And let me just tell you, I thought I had emptied my breast, but my goodness, I had not emptied my breast. I squirt breast milk all over the machine. Um, that was lovely, but that's the amount of pressure that's going on. So we recommend that mammograms are happening in your 40s, sometimes sooner if there's something going on. I actually had my first mammogram at 21 because I found a lump in my breast and I needed to have an ultrasound and I needed to have a mammogram. That was so, so painful. When when your breasts get older, and there's a whole breast chapter in Is This Normal, by the way, when your breasts get older, it's far less painful. Mm -hmm. And um, with that, uh, so screening is important just so that we are catching things. And the amount of radiation, people are always like, it's a lot of radiation to be exposed to. You know, it's pretty comparable to a lot of the other things that you get exposed to, like maybe if you need a CT or if you end up flying, you know, um, around the world on an, you know, a plane, not even around the world, but just, you know, continental or transcontinental. Um, and so understand though, that the risk of the mammogram, I, the, the, the benefits are there. So what we say is the benefits outweigh the risk and it is an important screening exam, but it doesn't negate the need to be checking in on your own breasts. And there's definitely people and even providers who are like, it doesn't really matter to be doing breast exams. Like you're not going to catch it. And no, I've known a lot of patients and a lot of women who knew their breasts so well that when there was a little tiny, you know, fixed BB size mass that wouldn't move um, and was hard, they caught it and they caught their breast cancer early. And so it is important that you know your breasts. And for, like I tell people and I tell patients like, listen, if you if you put lotion on every day, which is really good for like your breast um, tissue, like staying healthy as well, like the, the skin itself. Um, if you're putting on lotion and you're, you're doing that anyways, just do a quick check. 
And and even if you just come up, there's like the, the best way to do it. And then there's the way that like I actually do it and I follow through. You can do it then or you can do it in the shower when you're just washing yourself and everything's sudsed up anyways. Mm, okay. This is so helpful. Um, I actually got my first mammogram last year and what struck me, first of all, it didn't really hurt because um, I think people might be afraid of that. If, you know, they put your titty in a vice and they just, whatever they, they do. do. It's when you're much younger and that's what people need to understand. If you're much, much younger. So at 21, everything was perky and in place. And at 41, everything was like, I just melt right into this machine. And so I think that's just important differentiation. But even, even if you had told me like, oh, it could be the worst pain of your life, I would have still gotten that mammogram at 21 because the breast cancer is going to be way, way worse if it's like stage four than just getting, getting your titty squished, like you said. (laughs) Well, and you know, actually 1.2 is that my OBGYN told me like, I should start doing this every year. She said that she's been seeing crazy amounts of breast cancer at much younger ages. So Mm -hmm. I got my first one at I think 34. Um, and I'm so glad that I did, but what struck me is she said, I definitely needed an ultrasound every time I do it as well. So if you have denser breast tissue, Mm -hmm. that's my understanding. So if you're going to be productive about it, do you need to get a mammogram if you're also getting an ultrasound? Can you go straight to the ultrasound? No, you no, you can't go straight to the ultrasound. The ultrasound is helpful with the mammogram. The ultrasound is not going to be helpful completely on its own. Um, so yeah, they're, and they are great if they're complementary and they're done together. So when there was my scare at 21, that was definitely a situation where they were like ultrasound and mammogram. So um, here we are 20 years later and it's still the same thing, um, mammogram and ultrasound. Got it. Which is really, really helpful. Um, And just visualize it just, you know, it's just one more thing to catch anything that might be going on. Um, And as you talk about the incidence of breast cancer rising, this is a really good point to talk about endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. So medicine, again, why gotta be so sucky with like their dismissal? Like how many doctors are out there being like, oh, these people talk about toxins. I'm doing air quotes right now for people who can't see me. Oh, toxins. Like, and they dismiss it. And I'm like, God, the disservice you're doing and with your freaking ego, like put your ego to the side and get into PubMed and recognize that in the United States, we tend to be like, wait until enough harm has been done. And then let's go ahead and change what the chemicals are. So, you know, I remember when I was talking about Teflon pans and to stay away from those. And um, I mean, there's like, uh, when I've talked about endocrine disruptors in the past 10 years, um, there've been many times where other doctors have slammed me online. And now the you can't argue with the forever chemicals. You can't argue with this. And I'm like, yeah, shame on me for just being like, let's be really freaking cautious because this might be problematic. And as it turns out, it's very problematic. So when we look at things like hair straighteners, permanent hair dyes, cosmetics that we use on our skin, these have endocrine disruptors and there are associations with cancers. Is it that your lotion alone is going to cause your cancer? Unlikely. It's the compounded effect of day in and day out of the 13 plus products on average that women are exposed to over their entire lifetime that nobody bothered to actually say what happens when we bathe in a chemical soup. No, they're just like, eh, well, this one product only has this much in, and the FDA says this much is safe. And then meanwhile, the EU is like, no, F all that. We're not putting any of that into our products. We will not allow it because we know that the harm exists. And if there's the potential for harm, we, we are not a for-profit 
healthcare society, right? Mm -hmm. There's a potential for harm. We're just not going to do it because our medicine is actually, you know, is, you know, taking care of people. It's more of that socialized approach in that. And so that's important to understand. This is where government policies really start to come into play and can harm your health. And so with seeing a rise in these cancers, we have to start looking at what's in our environment. Now, as soon as I say that, it's really scary. It's really scary if you go and you dive in and you start looking at um, the fact that like, you know, even people are like, oh, organic isn't better. BS, BS. Okay. It is because we know the pesticides that are being used. Um, God, the estimates of like, you know, I think it was like 65,000 more chemicals are allowed into the American food system than in other countries with the pesticides that they'll use. And we know that these farm workers are developing cancer. Like if you... If you're like, as the individual, I think organic's not better. Could you, could you, could you care about farm workers who are being exposed to this, to the fact that people have to wear hazmat suits to be spraying our strawberries because these chemicals are known to cause reproductive harm and they also are associated with cancers. And if you look at like California, for example, the hotspot of where cancer diagnosis is up, this is in agricultural areas. So I say all of this, probably freak a lot of people out. What can you do? Let me give you tangible stuff because I've definitely had my nights where I stay up and I'm like, oh my God, I have children. What is this world I brought them into? Because I cannot control the fact that the ocean is overflowing with shit from the 80s. I'm partially to blame, right? I grew up then as well. Um, And things that are now affecting our modern, you know, individuals, but the upcoming generations. So number one is take to your home first. When it comes to your personal care products, you have to clean it up. If it's got fragrance, it's got to go. If it's got other, you know, things in there and you can go online, actually. Fragrance, like, are you talking about like lotions with fragrances? Oh, yeah. Candles with fragrances? All of the fragrances. If it's got fragrance, get it out of your house. Wow. No fragrance, no dryer sheets, no What about incense? Um, Incense are problematic. They're not, they're creating indoor air pollution. So that is, you know, it is something that if it's like part of your religion or anything, you like use an air purifier in your house. Um, open up your house once a week. Everybody should open up their house once a week to clear out indoor air pollution, even if it's cold. Okay. Even if it's cold, get your air, your airflow going. So um, fragrance, get it out. So starting with your personal care products, we want to remove these things. Do we do it right away? Not necessarily. Like if you're trying to get pregnant, yeah, move faster, but otherwise let it phase out and buy yourself time to do the research and find a new product. I know these things are expensive. So I'm not saying go to your medicine cabinet, throw everything out. I'm saying take inventory. And then as you run out of things, find something better to replace it with. So that is what you're putting on your skin, putting on your hair and on, you know, on your vulva maybe, uh, which is a mucous membrane. So please like when that, when things are getting washed up uh, in that area, please recognize that they can be absorbed. So the other thing is going to your kitchen, replace all plastic with glass, stainless steel. And that doesn't look like, oh, you have to go buy the fanciest freaking containers, right? You see on TikTok, like these people that like overdo everything with containers. That's great. I love their house. I love to look at it. I'm not going to do that. I am going to be sloppy and I'm going to use mason jars. I'm going to use mason jars, which cost like 19 cents. And when my kid break them, I don't even worry about it, but you can find more economical ways to do that. Teflon pans absolutely have to go. It's worth the investment to get high quality pans that are not going to have these forever chemicals. Forever chemicals are just that. They are forever. They're Mm -hmm. never going to go away and they are problematic. Now, something right now that you can do that is super, super simple. Take off your shoes before you come into the house. 
or leave them at the door. Do not walk through your house with your shoes on. You are picking up, you go through grass, you're picking up herbicides, pesticides. You are picking up whatever is in the parking lot, antifreeze, no thank you. You are picking up all kinds of stuff on your shoes. This is a very simple thing that has been shown to be effective. Cultures have been doing this since forever, okay? Um, you have your like house, you know, slippers, your chanclas, like you have your different sets of shoes for in your house. So with that, it's something very easy that you can do and you can immediately start dropping what is coming in. Then the other thing is, can you vacuum once a day? I know, what a drag. I'm a horrible person for saying that, right? Vacuum, sweep, get it out once a day. Your couches, your bedding, um, your mattresses, these things have flame retardants in them. These are not good for you, for your babies, for your pets, um, for anybody in the house, and they're going to affect the thyroid. It's hands down. They will affect your thyroid by cleaning up the dust every day. And if it's not every day, try to go every other, try to go twice a week, do what you can. This is also going to be something. So if you're like, well, the kitchen feels like a lot, the, um, it feels like a lot to go into my bathroom and, and take that on, take off your shoes, clean your floors, open up your house once a week. You can do those three things. I love this so much. I think I have to have you on for a part two, which I almost <laughs> never say because I have so many more questions. I want to ask you about the HPV vaccine, infertility, egg freezing, like weird smells and discharge. Like, I, you know, I'm going to go on and I know a lot of people get frequent yeast infections, UTIs, bacterial vaginosis. Like I'm yeah, literally- yeah. It's all in the book. <laughs> it's yeah. all in the book. But yeah, I mean, totally. we can talk more. Yeah, and maybe your audience wants to read the book and send yes. in some questions and we can yes. do it again. Yes. Um, where can everybody find you? Where can they get the book? Um, this has been one of my longer episodes because I literally just love this topic and it's so rare. Okay. Well, firstly, thank you. This has been a great conversation. You can find me at my main hub, drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N.com. And the book is there. The book is also at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or you can ring up your local bookstore and support an indie bookstore and purchase the book there. And then um, you can also find me Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all across the internet at DR Jolene Brighton. And I would love to interact with everybody there. Perfect. Thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. 
I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.